0: You see, what uh, bothers me a little about this account, and incidentally, it seems to confirm from the inside many of the people's uh, fears, worst fears, about the way in which American policy is conducted. For example, you say that all sorts of things were done in the field, for example, plotting to overthrow uh, the Syrian government and others, without the State Department
1: being uh, very fully informed about what you're up to. The State Department didn't want to be for- informed in that particular instance. If it had been informed, it would have to have told us not to do it. And therefore, you didn't inform it. The State Department practically asked not to be informed in this case. We did inform the State Department. And uh, as you've well, you read the book, uh, you know this, this case where uh, simply it was headed to us. That we had best shut up about what was happening in the country. And if Husni Zaim, uh, the case in point, you are talking about the Zayim. Case. Yes. We the if, uh, yes. Husni Zayim. The case if Husni Zaim wanted to have a coup and if his intention was to get rid of the corrupt uh, government and establish a democratic government, we should leave him alone and stay out of it. And that was a State Department policy, but in fact, you very largely organized, directed them, and you personally, but you're among the team who did it, organized and directed this coup. Exactly. Keith, uh, I'm not going to make a moral judgment about this. You're asking me the way things are done. Simply describe the way things are done. (laughs) It is true. Now, let me finish. It is true that in many cases, we would sit around and our. Attics of the State Department and we would have long discussions our government does not interfere in the internal affairs of a sovereign nation and we meant that from the bottom of our hearts and then we'd say but in this is one case where we have to and so we would have to try to decide how to do what it was we said was against our policy to do and we did in fact interfere in internal affairs of many sovereign nations.
2: of Latakia, northern Syria, the dock workers stage a jamboree. They're celebrating the passing of a new law that takes all Syrian dock workers into the government-controlled Workers' Federation. From now on, they will get more pay, they will work only eight hours a day, not 18, and they will no longer depend on the whims or corruption of the Taliban. The socialist state is in command. Tempers are short. In Syria, a celebration easily becomes a riot. But on this day, there was no violence. The crowd seemed genuinely happy. Life for them, they were convinced, was going to be better from now on. Just over one year ago, the left wing of an already socialist government seized power in Syria. After one of the bloodiest coup d'etats in Syria's turbulent recent history, the new Ba'ath, or Renaissance party, announced that it was the first government to genuinely represent the Syrian masses. And it's Damascus, more than any other Arab city that's been the center of Arab nationalism. It's got a history of bitter struggles against Turks and French. Now every Syrian feels that the fight is against Israel and the West. The man in the street believes that recently the Americans plotted to overthrow their government, and the evidence is strong. In the cafes, politics are made. Syrians are certain that the West won't help them, and that Russia is their friend. Does that mean that the Syrians themselves are becoming communists? Public opinion outside Syria is quite different from the uh, real situation here because the Americans and all the allies who cooperate with America are describing Syria to be communist. But they are quite mistaken because of many reasons. First of all, Syria is known to be an uh, Islamic country. And uh, we have many capitalists here and they never think of communism at all and they attack communism wherever they find it. And they are now being led by the simple leader, Abdel Nasser, who has never been, I mean, uh, charged with communism at all. Our policy is not different from that of Abdel Nasser.
0: To Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world. Today, we're doing something different. We're going back in time even further than usual to examine what led to the events of 2011 in Syria. One cannot understand how Syria became the way that it is today without understanding what happened in the 20th century. In the aftermath of World War II, a fledgling democracy located in the center of the Middle East was plagued by one coup d'etat after another. Political freedom was stifled. Dictators rose and fell every few years, until one man seized control of the government and imposed an unprecedented level of iron-fisted totalitarianism upon the Syrian population, He would go on to brutalize his fellow citizens, terrorize his neighbors, and joust with Cold War superpowers. His name was Hafez al-Assad. Today, we're talking about Bashar al-Assad's father. This is Episode 8, The Assad Family and Regime, Part 1. Hafez al-Assad was born on October 6, 1930, in a village called, I'm probably doing a poor job pronouncing it, Kardaha. It's a, it's a village close to Latakia in the northwestern corner of Syria. He was born to an Alawite family. Now this part of Syria is a place where a lot of Alawi people live. The Alawis follow a religion that's related to, but not exactly the same as Islam. There are some big differences between the Alawite religion and mainstream Sunni Islam. That's been the cause of a lot of persecution against Alawites throughout history. So when Hafez was born, he was born born to one of the lowest rungs of the Syrian socioeconomic ladder he was born to a poor family in a small rural village who also happened to be religious minorities in a country where the elites are almost all sunni muslim so in addition to the, his uh, just the difficulties associated with growing up in poverty there's also an element of sectarian discrimination going on and at the time, he actually wasn't technically born in Syria. He was born in a, in a place called the Alawite State. There was a point in time where Syria was colonized by France shortly after World War I. This was the result of the Ottoman Empire being split up between the victorious allied nations. That's how the British ended up colonizing Iraq and Jordan. They called that Transjordan. And France ended up with what would end up becoming Syria and Lebanon. As was often the case with the European imperial powers, the French practiced what was called divide and rule. They would look at pre-existing societal conditions in places where they conquered, and use those to their own advantage. In the case of Syria, this involved pitting the Sunni Muslim majority of the population against the Alawi people, the Druze, the Christians. The name says it all, divide and rule. It's easier to control these people and the territory when they're not all united against you. That was the number one fear that the French had that would eventually take place during the Great Syrian Revolt. So the Great Syrian Revolt of 1925 to 1927 was this really big, devastating war? It was kind of, it was kind of like, uh, almost like the Syrian version of their War of Independence, except this time the uh, the freedom fighters didn't win. They put up a really good fight. The French paid dearly for colonizing Syria, but they did eventually beat the rebels, and they engaged in some really, really brutal tactics, some of which would later be used by the, the Syrian government. During the Syrian civil war, almost a century later. The great Syrian revolt was already over by the time Hafez al-Assad was born. At this point, the French had given up on trying to rule Syria directly. So instead, they were trying, they were trying to use more indirect methods of colonial rule. And one important component of this was the creation of a modern Syrian army. Basically, the Syrian army, as we, as we think of it today, originated as, I think the polite term would probably be a partner force for the French colonists. Um, others would probably call them, uh, collaborators. The fact remains that the Syrian army, what would eventually come to be called the Syrian Arab army, originated as an arm of French colonialism. Now, I mentioned earlier that a majority of the Syrian population, especially the wealthy elite, were Sunni Muslims. So these people, they didn't like the French, they didn't really have a lot of incentive to join up with to join up with the French in beating back Syrian nationalism. So the French focused really hard on recruiting minority populations into the military, into the new modern Syrian military. I mean, this was very attractive for people who, who came from families that had lived in poverty and also lived through religious persecution for generations. This was their first shot at upward mobility beyond living memory. For a lot of these people. I want to turn now to a quote from Patrick Seale's book, Assad, The Struggle for the Middle East. This is a really old book, it was written back in the 1980s, and there are certain points where it does kind of reek of pro-Hafez al-Assad bias, but this book does still contain some crucial historical details. It's not a perfect source at all, but it is still a necessary one for studying Hafez al-Assad. I'd just recommend that if people do read this book, take the segments where Patrick Seale goes on political rants with a grain of salt. The following excerpt paints, I think, a very vivid picture of the environment in which Hafez al-Assad grew up. Quote, Leadership by inheritance could not be guaranteed. It had to be earned. From one generation to another, families rose and fell on the social scale. The mountain way of life in which each field had to be won from the rock at the price of much labor, and in which each man was the master of his patch and of his gun-bred individualism. A man's right arm could raise him above the common herd. A strong man could come to dominate his bay or local lord. Such champions shone in troubled times, and times were often troubled. For the most part, the people of the mountains were left to themselves, which suited them well enough. But by the same token, they were utterly neglected. Outside of the cities of the plains, Ottoman governance scarcely existed. In the upland settlements of the Wild Mountains, the state provided no justice or education, no health care, or roads, or jobs, or services of any sort. The only expression of authority was rapacious and oppressive the tax collector, or the mounted gendarme. It was not unknown for a single gendarme to ride into the village, assemble the villagers, take money if they had any, kill a chicken for his lunch, and make off back to civilization. Unquote. That was Patrick Seale writing in his book, Assad, The Struggle for the Middle East. Okay, I got. I gotta admit, I forgot one crucial detail. So, yeah, Assad grew up, I mentioned that Assad... Grew up in a rural area. He grew up in a rural, mountainous area. So this area in Syria, it's known as... It's nicknamed the Alawi Heartland. Now, even in this area, though, Alawis are, are still a minority of the population. But it's called the Alawi Heartland because this is an area where, just to put it bluntly, they essentially originated there. Nowadays, you can find Alawis basically all over Syria. But at that time, they were primarily concentrated... In the mountainous northwest of Syria, in, in and around Latakia, and as is often the case, I mean people people who live in mountains tend to they oftentimes flock there to get away from governments they don't like. And they they couldn't entirely get away from it, but you know they nowadays they at least they're not living directly under Sunni Muslim elites who had at various points in history persecuted them. So it makes sense why a lot of a lot of Alawis ended up settling in these remote, mountainous areas. But then, as Seal described, these areas end up becoming very austere and just downright lawless. This was a very... So so the rural poor in the area where Hafez al-Assad came from, they lived in this oppressive, feudal system in an area that we today would call flyover country. Seal goes on to describe just, just how bad life could get for the rural poor in villages like Kardaha. Puffed up by wealth, the owner of a village demanded the same deference in town as was given to him on the land. He was the candidate at elections, the spokesman for the community, the host when important guests passed through. On his estates, he demanded total obedience and docility from his landless serfs. Those he needed he housed in the village, others he expelled. The sharecropper had no say, could appeal to no authority, had nowhere else to go, was despised by others, and despised himself. One practice caused particular gall, the treatment of peasant women by the landowning men. Hardly a girl could become engaged without the approval of the boss. Newlyweds could not build a house without his permission, And if he wanted a girl and she resisted, she and her whole family risked being forced off the land, unquote. Once again, that was Patrick Seale writing in his book, Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East. So it's not a stretch to say that Alois had it bad when Hafez al-Assad was a kid. They had it rough. They were an oppressed underclass. And and going back to what Patrick Seale was saying about the treatment of peasant women. It was not uncommon for young Alawi women from these poor rural families to be sent into the cities to work for wealthy Sunni elites as indentured servants. They would do all kinds of just really unpleasant domestic work. And unfortunately, this was an environment where they really could be abused with impunity. So I say all this just to provide context for why even though the French were so hated. The French were, I mean, if you if you get colonized by the French, you're in for a rough time. There's just, yeah, it's just the way it is. So everybody, is, so pretty much all Syrians hated the French colonists. But even those who hated the French were desperate for some opportunity for a better life, because their lives were just awful. When the French created this new Syrian nation state, out of what had once been a province of the Ottoman Empire with a new modern Syrian army. This provided one of the first opportunities for upward mobility that the region had seen in, in centuries. Again, this didn't have as much appeal for Syria's Sunni Muslim population, especially for the wealthier ones. But for the poor, for either poor Sunni Muslims or for for religious minorities like Alois, Druze, Christians, etc. It was an irresistible opportunity. You know, hey, I can join the military, I can get an education, and my kids can grow up middle class. My daughter doesn't have to go work for some rich guy in a mansion who may or may not prey upon her. You know, Who wouldn't take that? Doesn't everybody want to give their kids a better life than the way that they grew up? Especially if they grew up Dirt poor being abused all the time. This new Syrian army created by the French to help them control this new Syrian nation-state would go on to have drastic consequences. Wendy Perlman expands on this in her book We Cross a Bridge and It Trembled. This is a this is a passage where she quotes a professor named Muhammad from Jobar. Quote, The new Syrian state inherited a Syrian army designed by the French, and the French designed it for divide and rule. They appealed to religious minorities to go into the army. Minorities were in an economic situation where they naturally wanted jobs. The French saw that, and at the same time they wanted to put them against the Sunni Muslim majority, which largely opposed the French. The result was an army that drew too heavily on minority communities." That was Mohammed, a professor from Jobar, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and it Trembled. So at the start, in the 1930s, where we're at right now, a majority of the Syrian population is Sunni Muslim, and this is a state that is largely controlled by Sunni Muslims. But because you have a far larger percentage of the minority populations joining the new Syrian military, this is going to create a situation where when the military eventually takes over the country, you have the minority populations usurping a majority of the population. But Hafez couldn't just go straight into the military. First, he had to get an education. And even though, even though he didn't come from money, Hafez al-Assad stood out as a kid for being a gifted student. And this led to him eventually being sent to a boarding school in Latakia. At only nine years old, Hafez al-Assad moves from his rural mountain village to Latakia, this big city in northwest Syria. He, he's a country boy who moves to the city. He's all by himself. He's poor. And oh, by the way, he's a religious minority surrounded by Sunni students, some of whom are loaded with cash. I distinctly remember a part in Patrick Seal's book, Assad, the Struggle for Syria, where he quotes Assad himself recounting how these wealthy Sunni boys were just terrorizing fellow students and even the teachers. Like, you know the bullies are bad when they're going after the teachers. (laughs) So while Hafez al-Assad was going to school as a young man, and probably having not the easiest time going through adolescence, being all by himself away from his family, he gradually got involved in politics. He was one of those young people who, like, right around the age of 13 or so, starts to, like, get interested in politics and starts learning about it, and that sort of sends them off on this journey throughout their lives. Hafez was one of those people. So he started looking into the the different political parties where Alawites were basically allowed to join. Political parties where Alawites, pretty much all secular parties. 20th century nationalism, sometimes what we would call fascism, or in other cases, just full-blown communists. So these parties include the Syrian Communist Party, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, or SSNP. Those guys are basically dime store Levantine Nazis. And then you've also got the good old Arab Ba'ath party. Ba'ath meaning rebirth in Arabic. If you type B-A-A, there's two A's, T-H, Ba'ath party, or or just type Ba'athist. If you type it in Google or Google Images, you're going to get pictures of guys like Saddam Hussein and Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad. Hafez kind of bounced around between different groups. He had some friends in the SSNP, but eventually he decided to go with the, I guess you could say, right-wing Ba'ath Party. So the thing about the Ba'ath Party, at this point, I I, I should say this is 1946. This is right after World War II. So it wasn't that long ago that people like Hitler and Mussolini were very influential across the world. They were were very well-known international figures. And among the various nationalists, that could be found throughout the Middle East, there were were left and right-wing nationalists. I mean, what they had in common was that they wanted to make their nations strong and influential on the world stage. But ideologically, they came from different camps. And in the case of the Ba'ath Party, in in a different situation, in a different country, for example, people in Syria who would join the Ba'ath Party probably would have joined a fascist party. It's an oversimplification to say that the Ba'ath Party is a far-right party, because there are basically right- and left-wing factions at at that point within the Ba'ath Party. So at this point, Hafez al-Assad's a teenager. This is the mid-1940s. World War II has just come to an end, and Hafez starts looking around at the various political parties in Latakia, that would allow Alawites to join. The secular parties were the ones that allowed Alawites to join because the, the religious fundamentalist parties were typically Islamist parties, like the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood is not a monolith. So they they have branches in, they have different branches in different countries. And different branches in these different countries have different ways of going about trying to promote what scholars call political Islam, or politics derived from their interpretation of Islam. And the Muslim Brotherhood, in the, especially in the case of Syria, was allied with the wealthy conservatives. I mean, religious conservatives allying with wealthy conservatives. I'm, I'm sorry, like every time I, the more I learn about the Muslim Brotherhood, it reminds me of the 21st century Republican Party. But anyway, back to Syria in the 1940s. In addition to the Muslim Brotherhood, you also had several secular parties in Syria. And typically, people who were not Sunni Muslim, they typically ended up in the secular parties because that's where they felt welcome. So this includes the Syrian Communist Party, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, and those guys are basically uh, dime store Levantine Nazis, and fa- and also the Arab Baath Party. Baath is A- Arabic for... Rebirth. This is the, the Arab rebirth party. The Ba'athist ideology basically holds that the Arabs were once the greatest people on earth through a series of unfortunate historical events. They have been divided and subjugated, and they will once again be the strongest people in the world by uniting altogether. There are left-wing Ba'athists, there are right-wing Ba'athists, there are several different types of Ba'athists, but frankly... Baathism is best described as just its own thing, rather than trying to pinpoint somewhere on the left-right political spectrum. You know, at, at least in the case of like the Syrian Communist Party or the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, it's it's pretty damn clear that one of them is a far left party and one of them's a far right party. Social Nationalist, come on, it's right there. But with the Baath, it's much, much, much more complicated. Faisal al-Assad chose to join when he was 16 years old. So as a result. Assad ends up spending his teenage years going to school, studying, but also outside of school. He is engaged. He's engaging in, in political organizing. He's a teenage political activist at, at, at a time when Syria did have kind of a democratic government. It wasn't the, the freest democracy. It wasn't the most transparent democracy or stable democracy, for that matter. But it was much, much more democratic than it would be later on. So at this point in time, a brief period where people in Syria can organize politically without fear of retaliation from the state. However, Assad did face retaliation from political opponents. Patrick Seale writes in his book, Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East, quote, Within two years of the founding conference, the Baath Party in Latakia had outstripped its principal competitors the communists, and the Syrian National Party, and was brought up hard against the fundamentalist Muslim Brotherhood, religious conservatives in alliance with the city elites, with whom it was thereafter to wage a war without quarter. The Ba'ath Party, secular, minoritarian, aggressive, was the natural enemy of the Brotherhood, who picked out Hafez al-Assad, already something of a student leader, and repeatedly tried to beat him up. Once, in 1948, Members of the Muslim Brotherhood caught Assad on his own and knifed him in the back. The wound took several weeks to heal. The early fights in the streets became part of the legitimacy Assad later claimed, unquote. That was an excerpt from Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East by Patrick Seale. When people talk about Hafez al-Assad and the Muslim Brotherhood, they usually talk about the conflict that took place in the late 70s to early 80s, and we will get there, believe me, we will. But what often gets lost is the fact that Hafez al-Assad had personal confrontations with members of the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood as a teenager. According to the story, which, okay, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, there are anecdotes, at least, of Hafez al-Assad engaging in street fights and sometimes getting pretty badly hurt. I wouldn't go as far as to say that Hafez held a lifelong grudge against the Muslim Brotherhood, but given some of the traits that he's going to exhibit pretty soon, I think one could say that Assad viewed the Brotherhood as a threat throughout his life. It was that same year that one of the most important developments to take place within the last hundred years of world history happened. In 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war broke out. Well, okay. Technically, the fighting didn't start in 1948. It actually started a lot earlier. But in 1948, it was the start of a new and much, much more catastrophic phase. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I am not, I am not making the case that the Israelis are the bad guys in the conflict. No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not blaming Israel for the Arab-Israeli conflict. But what happened in 1948 resulted in the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, in addition to deaths and displacements on the Israeli side. And this, but but the difference being that the Israelis did win the war at great cost. It was a terrible experience for them to go through. They were attacked by a, a, a large coalition of Arab countries, but the Israelis won. And so as a result, you know, It was bad, but in the end, they won. They got the land. The Palestinians, not to make a moral judgment here, the Palestinians lost their land and got displaced all across the Middle East. And there were so many other second and third order effects resulting from Israel winning the 1948 war. But for our purposes, the consequences that the war in 1948 had for Syria were permanent. Alia Malik writes in her memoir, The Home That Was Our Country, quote, The Syrian military became a scapegoat for the humiliation Syrians felt as a nation that was vanquished. However, like the elites or the new political parties, not all officers thought with one mind. Among them, many were loyal to different ideological factions. Sometimes that even meant being more loyal to military strongmen outside of outside of Syria such as Egypt or Iraq, than to a class that they were never part of inside Syria. With the old elites able to dominate and manipulate institutions that should have been democratic, the ideologues became willing to work with the military in hopes of bringing about the envisioned changes. As might have been expected, the men with guns could and would dump the philosophers. Thus, Syrians were introduced to the coup d'etat, the attempted coup d'etat, and the counter-coup. While each coup that took place had different goals based on the philosophies of whoever was backing it, all tended to follow a similar process. Unquote. That was Alia Malek writing in her memoir, The Home That Was Our Country. So the 1948 war with Israel destabilized Syrian politics so much that not one, not two, three different coup d'etats. I don't even know how to say the plural for coup d'etat, I'll just be honest. Three different coups or coup, however you say it, three of them took place in Syria in 1949. And you might be thinking, wow, three military coups? That sounds insane. Well, going forward, Syria is about to go through an absurd number of coup d'etat. Uh, up until Hafez finally launches his coup in in March of 1949 an, a military officer named Husni al-Zaim launches a coup a- against a democratically elected president named Shukri al-Quwat that same August al-Zaim is overthrown by a military officer named Sami al-Hanawi and al-Zaim is executed Hanawi is kind of like the unofficial military ruler of Syria up until that December when he gets overthrown ...by one of Syria's first real dictators, a guy named Adib al-Shishkali. And Shishkali was known for being having a relatively pro-Western stance. That's a vast oversimplification, but I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible. Eventually, though, he would be overthrown by people who were more sympathetic to the Soviet Union in 1954. This led to a political crisis and possibly an attempted coup by Adib al-Shishkali to return to power in 1957 this possibly had some CIA involvement there were also reports of an alleged plan to use Iraq and Jordan to invade Syria to remove the current government and install Shishkali back in power it's not exact we don't know exactly how true these allegations are we don't know exactly how um how developed these plans really were at least with the with the March 1949 coup there's a lot more evidence to suggest that there was Western involvement in that. And by that, I mean the CIA. One of the first ever coup d'etats that the CIA was involved in was the 1949 coup in Syria, according to a former CIA officer named Miles Copeland Jr. Now, this guy Copeland, he wrote multiple memoirs about his work in the Middle East when he was a CIA officer. There have, there have been some people who have called his work into question. Perhaps he was either embellishing his tales, or maybe he was even spreading just outright disinformation to confuse enemies of the United States. We don't know. But complicating matters, the Syrian government would develop a reputation for alleging that foreign powers had been involved in one attempted coup after another, and then not show evidence for it. So while there's certainly, I think, one could say that there's evidence to say that there was western covert intervention in Syria, at least in 1949, it's less clear to what extent that took place in the 1950s and the 1960s. It was in this span of time that Hafez al-Assad graduated with the equivalent of a high school diploma and then got accepted into the Syrian military to join as an officer. For more on this, we turn to we turn back to Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East by Patrick Seale. Quote, at the Homs Military Academy, where he enrolled in the autumn of 1951, one of an intake of 90 candidates, Assad met and befriended Mustafa Tlaas, a young Sunni from the village of Rastan, near Homs, who was to be his staunch aide and ally for the next several decades. Like Assad, Tlass had been a Baathist schoolboy and distinguished himself as a scout for the party, their friendship was a cross-sectarian class alliance, typical of the young revolutionaries at that time, unquote. That was Patrick Seale writing in Assad, the struggle for the Middle East. The Assad regime has a reputation for being one where Alawis are favored over Sunnis. But to say that it is an exclusively Alawi regime, or at least in the early years, it's is not accurate. There were Sunnis, who there were Sunni Muslims who sided with Hafez al-Assad. These were typically Sunni Muslims who had grown up poor, away from the privilege that most of the members of the Muslim Brotherhood had grown up in. So while Hafez and Mustafa are undergoing training as officer cadets, you know, this is basically the Syrian equivalent of West Point. It's in this span of time that Hafez does a lot of uh, covert political networking. He makes, he keeps an eye out for people who think like him, for people with his political outlook for people who could be tempted to join the Ba'athists. And one by one, Hafez and Mustafa established a pretty formidable network. Patrick Seal writes more about this, about where this led to, quote, Opposites exploded into violence in April 1955, when Colonel Adnan al-Malki, the leading Ba'athist officer in the army, was shot dead at a football match, unquote. Just want to say, Americans would call that soccer. His assassin, an Alawi military police sergeant, was himself immediately gunned down by another Alawi. It was soon revealed that the assassin was a member of the SSNP, a connection that allowed the Baathists and communists to mount a campaign against the SSNP and break it in a wave of arrests and treason trials. Colonel Malki's murder was to have crucial consequences for Syria's modern history, with its principal rival eliminated the Ba'ath Party found itself the strongest political force in the military. As a result, Hafez al-Assad's career was advanced with, along with that of other Ba'athists, unquote. That was Patrick Seale writing in Assad, the struggle for the Middle East. Now, I don't want y'all to come away with the impression that Assad didn't earn his promotion. He, he was a hard-working man. I mean, he's one of those he's one of those guys who grew up dirt poor, learned the value of hard work at a really young age. When he, when he said his mind on something, he worked for it. He wasn't one of those dictators that would like pin a whole bunch of medals on his chest that he didn't earn. He wasn't that kind of guy. Upon graduating and earning a military commission, Hafez al-Assad became a pilot in the Syrian Air Force, ended up becoming a pilot, not just, not just some like commercial pilot. This guy flew fighter jets Yeah, 1950s fighter jets, you know, and this was this would lead to him undergoing training in Egypt and also even the Soviet Union. So Hafez al-Assad, this guy who grew up dirt poor in a small village outside of Latakia, has managed to work his way to flying some of the most advanced fighter jets on the planet. This goes to show the kind of upward mobility that the Syrian military allowed, especially for people from the religious minority communities. So his day job is to fly fighter jets and train for future war with Israel. And when he's not working, he's engaging in covert political organizing. He's just keeping an eye out for people who he could persuade to join his side. And eventually he develops this clique within the Syrian military that would get together in private to talk about politics and how to overthrow the government that they serve. They took inspiration from Egypt's leader at the time, Gamal Abdel Nasser. He overthrew King Farouk in 1952. This set a major precedent for governments in the Middle East. Like, it, it ushered in a new era of long-standing monarchs or other old institutions being overthrown by upstart nationalistic military officers. And so by now, in the uh, late 1950s, the Syrian government, you know, they're not stupid. They know that this is a risk that they face. Some Daguer writes about the dangers that Hafez al-Assad and his comrades faced in Daguer's book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Cadets risked expulsion if if they broached subject of politics, but Hafez, Mustafa, and like-minded Baathists still found time in between pilot training courses for animated political discussions. They voiced shared disdain for Adib al-Shishkali, a general nicknamed the Arab Caesar, who ruled Syria after three successive coups in 1949 and allied himself to Britain, Saudi monarchs, and the United States. To Baathist cadets... Shishkali was America's pet. Instead, they wanted a leader who challenged and confronted the West. The newly minted officers were faced with a country that, barely a decade after gaining its independence was reeling from a series of successive military coups, assassinations, and an interseen struggle in the army over the direction Syria should take and its place in the geopolitical map of the time. There were factions pushing for union with Nasser's Egypt. Their main opponents were those desiring unity with Iraq, ruled at the time by a king. These officers wanted Syria to be part of the so-called Baghdad Pact, a United States-backed organization which included Britain, Iraq, Pakistan, the Shahs, Iran, and Turkey, against Soviet encroachment in the oil-rich and strategic Middle East. Communists were also gaining strength in the army and wanted to see Syria firmly anchored in the Soviet camp. As in ancient times, Syria was at the crossroads of civilizations and ideologies. Hafez and Mustafa were mere lieutenants, but were in the thick of all the army intrigue, and like most Ba'athist officers, they believed that their survival meant throwing their lot in with the Nasserists against the others, especially after Nasser's popularity surged following the 1956 Suez Crisis. In the fall of 1957, while Hafez al-Assad was posted at the Meze airbase in Damascus, Mustafa Talas was part of an army contingent sent to Aleppo as a show of force to dissuade Turkey from making an incursion into Syria. The Turks had amassed troops at the border at the behest of the American allies, with Britain, who allegedly hoped to assassinate key communist and Nasserite figures in Damascus in order to install a Western friendly government. Unquote. That was Sam Daguerre writing in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. So Hafez and Mustafa and their friends, these guys are in their 20s, but they are in the thick of international intrigue. That's what can happen when somebody who grew up poor in a village full of religious minorities joins the Syrian military. That is the kind of upward mobility that this allows. Faction within the Syrian military that wanted to unify with Egypt got their way. Syria and Egypt, two different nations, unified into one the United Arab Republic. So again, regarding Nasser, Gamal Abdel Nasser, say whatever you will about him as a person and what he did, he was an idolized figure among Arab nationalists at the time. And this includes the Syrian officers who were pushing and pushing and pushing for Syria to unify with Egypt. The thing about Arab nationalists is like, in somewhat paradoxical ways, they believe that the various Arab states that exist right now, you know, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Algeria, you name it, in order to regain their place as one of the dominant peoples of the world, they all have to reunify into one gigantic nation state. It's completely insane, but it's what they believe. And the thing about the 1950s is that this is the pinnacle of Arab nationalism. You've got an Arab nationalist who overthrows the king of Egypt. Now suddenly he's one of the leading figures in the Middle East, and then and then he gets attacked by... Britain, France, and Israel in 1956. Eventually, they get pressured to, to to back off. But he makes it look like that he beat them. So suddenly, his popularity skyrockets among his people. Again, Gamal Abdel Nasser. It's it's not an exaggeration to say that he was an idolized figure at that time by Arab nationalists. And as a result, the a lot of the Syrian officers who had long who had been idolizing him for years. When they found themselves under his leadership, they were disappointed. Oh, man, it was not at all what they were expecting. The Syrians basically just got dominated by the Egyptians, and they really resented that. And it turns out, in the same year that Syria unified with Egypt to become the United Arab Republic, Hafez al-Assad entered his own very important personal union. For this, we turn back to Assad, the struggle for the Middle East by Patrick Seale. Quote, in 1958, Air Force Lieutenant Hafez al-Assad was determined to marry Anissa Makhlouf, a girl he had known since childhood and whom he had singled out when he was in his early 20s. He had fallen in love with her on his return from his training course in Egypt. She was a school teacher of demure good manners, a trim, dark-haired young woman close to his age who had been most respectably educated at the French-run Convent of the Sacred Heart at Banias on the coast. But there were considerable obstacles to to a marriage, which only sharpened Assad's resolve to overcome them." That was Patrick Seale writing in his book, Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East. Anissa's family was much wealthier than Hafez al-Assad. That right there is typically a deal-breaker when it comes to trying to arrange a range of marriage in Syria. A buddy of mine from Damascus once described it to me as uh, a marriage in Syria. It's not a marriage between individuals. It's a marriage between two families. So if a man and a woman are in love with each other, the traditional thing that most people to this day in Syria still do, they go to their parents. The man goes to the woman's parents, and he has to get her father's permission. When Hafez approached Anisa's dad, he was not thrilled. Because, number one, this guy has nowhere near as much money as we do. It, it probably goes without saying that most most men in Anissa's father's position are not going to approve of that. But an even bigger obstacle is the fact that they were not Baathists. They did not like Baathists because they supported the SSNP, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, a.k.a. the Levantine Nazis. Despite the fact that like, the SSNP and the... A lot of the Ba'ath Party's ideologies are actually really similar to each other, with some differences. The SSNP and the Ba'ath did not get along with each other, mostly because of that whole murder of that colonel I described earlier, and all the other rivalries that took place before. It's just your typical interpersonal conflict, more so than a political thing. Now, stories of two young people in love who face disapproval from their families are not that uncommon in Syria. These tales typically end with the young lady's father putting his foot down and sending the young man off with a heartbreaking memory that haunts him for the rest of his life. But Hafez al-Assad appears to have been one of the rare examples of a suitor who overcame his soulmate's disapproving dad and managed to marry Anisa Makluf. This was the beginning of a major political alliance between two families who would soon become the most powerful within the country. This is why a guy named Rami Maklouf—remember, Anissa Maklouf, the Maklouf family—this is why a guy named Rami Maklouf managed to become the richest man in Syria decades later because he was the dictator's cousin. What this anecdote demonstrates is that Hafez al-Assad possessed an exceptional force of will, a tendency for persistent and ruthless pursuit of ambitions— This personality trait will be a dominant feature of Assad's military and political career, leading to people like Henry Kissinger coming to regard him as a formidable opponent. Hafez al-Assad and Anisa Maklouf had several children during their marriage. Unfortunately, their first daughter died as a baby while Hafez was undergoing, was undergoing more advanced military training in the Soviet Union. Their second daughter, Bushra, she managed to survive infancy. And according to some accounts, Bushra became Hafez's favorite of his children. We'll have a lot more to say about Bushra and her younger brother's especially her middle brother, Bashar al-Assad, in part two. For now, we're focusing on how their dad became an iron-fisted dictator. Next time, we'll go into detail about why he's also quite possibly the worst father of the 20th century. So, of course, Hafez being Hafez, you can be damn sure he was involved in secret political maneuverings, Oh, he's only just gotten started at this point. He was one of several Syrians who came to resent domination by Egypt in what was supposed to have been an equitable arrangement between fellow Arabs. That was one of several factors behind the United Arab Republic lasting about as long as the average Hollywood supercouple. And when these two broke up... OMG. If there's one thing Assyrian military officers have gotten pretty good at by now, it's organizing a coup against a government that's irritated them one too many times. Not just plotting a coup, not just daydreaming some push, I mean actually planning and executing one with experienced professionals. Egypt might have been the stronger nation within the UAR, but the Syrians were more crafty. Nasser gravely underestimated what sort of blowback wealthy Syrian elites and disgruntled Syrian officers could incur if he nationalized too much of the Syrian economy and threatened the livelihood of too many connected individuals. Ironically, those two groups, the Syrian elites and disgruntled Syrian officers, had previously been at each other's throats until he pissed them all off. On September 28th, 1961, enough Syrian officers got on the same page to undergo the traditional rites of a Syrian coup d'etat. Tanks in the streets, soldiers setting up checkpoints, and a communique number one broadcast over the radio, hyping up how awesome the new regime is and how bad the old regime was. The army has restored honor to Syria. Egypt and Syria came very, very close to going to war at this point. But both sides, to their credit, went to great lengths to prevent this, and all prisoners taken were exchanged by both sides. After Nasser called off previous orders to... Quote, crushed the rebellion, as he's reported to have put it. Syria regained independence as the Syrian Arab Republic. Now, if you happen to be a Syrian who was not Arab, things weren't exactly easy for you. Within a few years, Syria's Kurdish population would pretty much all be stripped of their citizenship and forbidden to speak their own language. We'll we'll talk more about that in a future episode. But in addition to this explicit ethnic nationalism seen in the Syrian Arab Republic, it would also end up being far more repressive and far more undemocratic than the previous Syrian republics. Regaining independence had the unintended consequence of reigniting the previous rivalries among various cliques within the Syrian military and the business elite. These guys had just overthrown a a regional titan when they served Gamal Abdel Nasser with divorce papers. Now they were emboldened to plot future conspiracies against each other. Syria at this point was so unstable because it was such a young nation state. It had been a province of the Ottoman Empire for centuries and a province of other empires for thousands of years. It has some of the oldest cities in the world, but in the 1960s, its government and institutions were almost brand new and not very secure. That's the Syrian paradox. It's an old place and a young nation. From the French Mandate, where it was a bunch of states divided by religion, to the First Syrian Republic, to the Second Syrian Republic, to the United Arab Republic, to the Syrian Arab Republic, you can see that a lot of this is still in flux by the 1960s. To paraphrase George R. R. Martin, chaos is a ladder. And if anybody in human history has ever used chaos as a ladder, Hafez al-Assad is that guy. Patrick Seale writes in Assad, The Struggle for the Middle East, quote, Assad spent 1962 as a full-time conspirator. He and his colleagues meant to take power in Syria by a conventional military coup, which meant stealthily putting together a junta of officers who on the day could deliver a punch strong enough to overpower the government. Without a mass revolutionary movement at their command, they were forced to cast their conspiracy within the, within the narrow bounds of the Officers' Club and the mutinous barracks, which had been the arena of politics in the Syrian armed forces since 1949, That was Patrick Seale writing in his book, Assad, the Struggle from the Middle East. Now, Hafez didn't exactly have a f- perfect track record when it came to plotting and conspiring, in 1962, he was arrested and spent some time in jail over his involvement in a, in a coup that failed. For most people in his position, this would have been a career-ending setback, but he got really, really, really lucky. Apparently, he managed to convince the people he had been plotting to overthrow to let him out of prison and somehow keep his job. This is one of those moments where we turn back to the old saying, truth is stranger than fiction. And also, whoever let him out of prison probably came to regret it in less than a decade. Actually, no, they didn't even need to wait a decade. All they had to do was wait one year to realize, oh, we shouldn't have let Hafez and all those other guys out of jail. Because in 1963, another coup, but this time perhaps the most consequential coup d'etat yet in Syria, took place. On March 8th, 1963, a cabal of Syrian military officers overthrew the government that had overthrown pro-Egypt government in 1961 and broken up the United Arab Republic. Once again, coup after coup after coup, but this time, the people, the people responsible for the coup went even further to try to make sure that at a similar coup d'etat wouldn't happen again. Now, it didn't exactly work out that way. There were attempted coups afterward. There were, there were successful coup d'etats afterward, but A new level of repression would be introduced to Syria as a result of the 1963 coup d'etat. This would result in the Ba'ath party taking power in Syria. At this point, there is no other functional political opposition thanks to the 1963 coup d'etat. If you you were a Ba'athist, this was a good day for you. If you weren't a Ba'athist, life sucked for you. (laughs) 1963 would see the passage of what they called an emergency law which was used by the Syrian government as an excuse to crack down on any and all dissent. Anybody who said anything the Syrian government didn't like was now at risk of retaliation by the government. The Baathists probably assumed that this was it. They had won. This is what we had been working towards since 1949. We finally got our way. Now we, the Baath, are the ones on top. Well... Yeah, you know how I just mentioned that there were going to be future coup d'etats? Well, not just from the people they had forced out of power. Eventually, there will be several purges of different political factions within within the Syrian military. Purges conducted by the Baathists to consolidate their grip on power. After these purges, the Baathists are going to turn on each other. Specifically, the political leaders and the younger, rougher military leaders they're going to find themselves at each other's throats. Hafez al-Assad was on the side of the military leadership, which was then led by a kind of really weird dude named Salah Jadid. For quite a long time, Hafez and Jadid were close allies. They were both Ba'athists, they had known each other for a long time, and they had conspired together for years and years and years to bring about what eventually led to the 1963 coup. But then... Jadid found himself in conflict with the founders of the Ba'ath party. This includes guys like Michel Aflak. Yeah, go ahead, make the Aflak joke. Please, go ahead, get out of your system. So Michel Aflak and Salah Jadid didn't see eye to eye on really anything. And eventually, Salah Jadid got with his old buddy Hafez and their friends, and they were like, hey, guys, you know that thing we used to do every few years where we overthrow the government? I think it's getting to be about time we do that again. So they plotted and plotted and plotted, and by 1966, Salah Jadid, with the help of Hafez al-Assad and their buddies, they took over Syria. It was a Ba'athist-on-Ba'athist coup. One group of Ba'athists overthrew the older, less popular Ba'athists. So what we could take away from this is that at this point, from 1949 to the mid-1960s, Syria has undergone so many coup d'etats, whatever the plural way you say that is, Syria has undergone so many of them, so many different usurpations, so many times where the military has overthrown the democratically elected government. We're, we're long past democratically elected. We're now we're seeing strongmen overthrowing strongmen. The political factions have been wiped out, practically speaking. But now the Ba'ath party is totally in control, and now you have Ba'athists overthrowing other Ba'athists. It is just this never-ending cycle of almost cannibalism when you think about it. Before we get into the 1966 coup, I, I want to say just one more thing about what, about the events of 1963. There's a picture, a photograph that was taken of three of the main leaders of the 1963 coup. It's a grainy black and white photo, but even as poor quality as it is, you can see the happiness and triumph in their eyes. These three dudes' names are Salim Hatoum, Mohammed Umran and Salah Jadid. They look so happy in that photograph. And in less than ten years, two of these men will be dead, and one of them will be in prison, where he will spend the rest of his life. That's the thing about a nation-state where coup d'etat is frequent, success is often short-lived. Oh, I almost forgot a couple of really crucial details, my mistake. Somewhere about 800 people were killed. In the 1963 coup d'etat in Syria. This is the deadliest coup thus far. 800 people were killed. 800 people were killed. This was not a bloodless coup where the military rolls in and nobody does any shooting. No, there was shooting. There was definitely shooting going on. You know, rather rather than just fold and run away like like usual when a head of state realizes that a coup is taking place, the people being overthrown ordered units loyal to them to fight back. And this is where Hafez al-Assad has one of his most badass moments. Hafez al-Assad was given the task of capturing a key airbase. Now, the people at this base had been ordered to get in the air and start bombing the people behind the coup. So Hafez had to stop that from happening in order for the coup to be successful. But he couldn't just take the base by force. He he didn't have enough men to do it. So he encircles the airbase right before the planes go up in the air. And then he sends an emissary down to talk to the people at the base. And Assad warns them that he will start shelling the entire base... If they don't surrender, he can't just send his infantry in to take it back by force, but he does have enough shells to just destroy the whole place and destroy God knows how many expensive fighter jets that Syria cannot afford to lose. This would cripple the Syrian Air Force if Hafez went through with shelling the airbase. So the guys at the airbase are like, you know, our country will never recover from this. And Hafez just like, too bad either surrender or die. Did I not mention that Hafez al-Assad is an extraordinarily ruthless person? And yeah, they surrendered. That was one of Hafez al-Assad's moments of glory, if you will. We can see how, over time, he's gone from playing a peripheral role in, in one coup after another to playing a pivotal role. And his increasing prominence among the conspirators will eventually put him in conflict with Ba'ath Party leaders like Michelle Aflac, and later on with Salah Jadid. So, now that we're back on track with the details that I accidentally left out, after a few years of Ba'athist-on-Ba'athist Baathist conflict, various interpersonal rivalries simmering over time, this this eventually led to the coup of 1966. You, you remember that photograph I mentioned of the coup in 1963, where those three guys are hugging each other, celebrating Salim Hatoum, Muhammad Umran, Salah Jadid? Those guys... Well, they ended up on opposite sides of the coup in 66. So, Muhammad Umran, the guy in the middle of that picture, who is shown hugging Salah Jadid and Salim Khatoum, Umran was among the old guard who got overthrown in 1966 by Salah Jadid, Salim Hatum, along with Hafez al-Assad and his old buddy Mustafa Tlaas. Damn. <laughs> This is one of the most tragically ironic pictures I think I've ever seen, really. Muhammad, um, so Muhammad Amran and other elites such as Michel Aflaq, Salah al-Din al-Batar, and Amin al-Hafiz, the old guard of the Syrian Ba'athists, they got kicked out. Not only kicked out of the party, they got kicked out of Syria. When they got, the men who had previously been the most powerful in the country were now reduced to fleeing the country. Now, this coup d'etat in 1966 would have the effect of creating a permanent schism among Baathists in Syria versus those in Iraq. The Baathists who got overthrown in 66, they fled to Iraq, which was then also dominated by a Baathist government. This would lead to the Syrian Baath Party and the Iraqi Baath Party becoming mortal enemies. Hafez al-Assad and Saddam Hussein hated each other. Well, we'll get to that in great detail in part two. In 1966, Hafez al-Assad was 40 years old. After serving as a fighter pilot in the Syrian Air Force for a long time, he had risen up the ranks, been promoted to the rank of Major General. He was now commander of the Syrian Air Force prior to the 1966 coup. As a direct result of his involvement in the 1966 coup, which elevated Salah Jadid to the role of unofficial dictator, Hafez al-Assad became the minister of defense. That is how close Assad was to Jadid. He was one of Jadid's right-hand guys. They were close allies. Until the following year. In 1967, Arab nationalists experienced their greatest catastrophe. A setback so bad that they never recovered from it. It was the Six-Day War. Longstanding tensions between Israel and its neighbors boiled over into war once again in 1967. But this time, Israel famously seized the upper hand early on with a series of preemptive airstrikes. Patrick Seale describes the Six-Day War in his book, Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East, quote, By destroying the Egyptian air force on the ground on the morning of June 5th, 1967, Israel brought the Arab world to its knees. Photographic reconnaissance early that morning had shown the Egyptian air force to be totally unprepared. The Six-Day War was a week-long nightmare for Hafez al-Assad, Syria's defense minister. On June 5th, Assad lost his air force. On the 10th, the strategically important Golan Heights. Then on the 12th, the strong point high on Mount Hermon, from which israel could then monitor every movement in the damascus plain the syrian capital now virtually under siege was swarming with thousands of refugees unable to sleep he fainted with fatigue at the defense ministry and when the immediate and when the immediate danger was over went home and brooded over the catastrophe for 3 days Refusing to see anyone, the post-mortem on the war provoked furious quarrels among Syria's leaders. The party, high command, and the government were racked by mutual recriminations. The officers blamed the civilians for precipitating the conflict, and the civilians denounced the officers for incompetence. Several party members demanded Assad's immediate resignation as defense minister, and an attempt was made to oust him from the regional command. It was defeated by only one vote. Unquote. That was Patrick Seale writing in Assad, the Struggle for the Middle East. It's no exaggeration to say that Hafez al-Assad spent the aftermath of the Six-Day War looking for ways not only to keep his job, but also to save his own skin. He predicted that old rivals of his would take advantage of his current misfortune to oust him from the positions he took from them. Sam Daguer writes about what happened when Hafez's prediction proved accurate in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Quote, Syria's military leaders fretted that the crushing defeat could cost them power. As the defense minister, Hafez felt most vulnerable. He was determined to neutralize threats from wherever they came. When two banished ex-comrades returned to Syria, Hafez moved quickly to arrest them on suspicion that they might act against the weakened regime. Unquote. Now, one of these people was Salim Hatoum. One of the three guys in that photograph in 1963 celebrating together. Hatoum, Umran, Jadid. Umran's been banished. He's going to get assassinated a few years later. And Hatoum, he too ended up getting banished when he, when he tried to lead his own insurrection later on in 1966. And this damn fool, this damn fool Hatoum tried to lead an insurrection in his hometown, which wasn't really the best idea considering that one of his rivals controlled the Syrian Air Force. Yeah, our guy Hafez. Hafez al-Assad immediately put an end ...to Salim Hatoum's insurrection by ordering the Air Force to bomb them. That's one way of putting down an insurrection. The lesson to take away from this is that if you're going to launch an insurrection against the government... ...it pays to have the, the government's defense minister on your side instead of challenging him to a fight. Hatoum managed to survive that debacle, but, but he got exiled as a result. But within one year, he had he saw an opportunity to return to Syria and regained the power that he foolishly threw away in an attempted insurrection when Hafez al-Assad found himself in a really shaky position after the Six-Day War. To describe what happened next, we, re- we turn back to Sam hairs Assad or we burned the country. Quote, When two banished ex-comrades returned to Syria, Hafez moved quickly to arrest them on suspicion they might act against the weakened regime. Hafez called Mustafa Tlaas and urged him to sentence them to death right away. I'll do it first thing tomorrow morning, Mustafa responded. You have to do it this minute. You do not understand. The leadership is in real crisis. There's panic that the regime may fall, Hafez insisted, stressing the impact of the loss of the Golan Heights. Mustafa immediately put on his military uniform and drove to the army theater building in Damascus, where a tribunal was hastily convened. Mustafa, now a lieutenant colonel, presided over the five-officer court. Proceedings were filmed to show the public that losing the Golan had nothing to do with the regime's ineptitude or or Hafez al-Assad's possible treason, as many Syrians were beginning to murmur. But it was instead the result of a conspiracy by Jordan's monarchy, the CIA, West Germany, and other enemies of the people. Like the two disloyal Syrian officers, Salim Hatoum and Badr Juma, who were on trial. Unquote. Yeah, remember what I said about the regime has a long history of, of accusing foreign powers of various conspiracies without evidence? Oftentimes they do that when they need an excuse for their own screw ups. Now back to the quote, quote Hatoum, once a member of the ruling junta, was dazed and incoherent because of severe torture. But the lesser figure, Juma, confessed the explanation Mustafa was looking for, that they planned to topple the regime and put in place a government that was representative of all of Syria's political currents. Mustafa adjourned for 10 minutes and called Hafez to update him. He would issue the death sentence and carry it out instantly, and afterward he would deal with the formality of getting it approved by the junta's figurehead president. Good job, and you won't be responsible for this on your own. I and all the comrades in the leadership are with you, Hafiz al-Assad assured him. Unquote. So, yeah, th- these two guys are being executed before the requirement that the that the actual president at that time be notified about the executions. That's how powerful Hafiz al-Assad was. He could do that. Now back to the quote from Sam Daguerre's book, quote, "...at three o'clock in the morning, Mustafa sentenced his two comrades to death by firing squad on charges of grand treason. Several reports emerged afterward that Mustafa had personally taken part in the torture and impalement of Hatoum, and that Hatoum was already dead when he was dragged into the prison's shooting range." Hatoum's horrific execution did little to stem the disarray, recrimination, and backstabbing following what became known as the Naxa, or setback, of 1967, Israel's swift defeat of Syria and other Arab states, unquote. So the quote that I've been reading is an excerpt from Assad or We Burned the Country by Sam Daguerre. So, that picture taken in 1963 of... Of Salim Hatoum, Muhammad Umran, and Salah Jadid hugging each other, celebrating the success of that coup. Well, one of those guys is now dead, Hatoum. He's just been either shot or tortured to death, depending on who you ask. Muhammad Umran is currently in exile in Lebanon. Hafez al Assad's gonna have him assassinated in a few years. Now, it's just Hafez and Jadid. Hafez and Jadid are now circling each other like two cats about to fight each other in an alley. They've had long-standing political differences. Remember earlier I said that the Ba'ath Party isn't really so much left or right-wing. There are left and right-wing people within it. Hafez al-Assad is one of the right-wing people in the Ba'ath Party, and Salah Jadid is one of the more flagrantly far-left people. He, He took a lot of inspiration from Stalin and Mao, Hafez, he was kind of sort of a socialist, but he was also very pragmatic. It's very likely that he allied himself with left-wing figures because at the time, he as an Alawite would not have been welcome by the mainstream Syrian right-wing. That's how he ended up drifting into left-wing politics as a young man. But now, he has moved up the ranks, he's in his late 30s, and now he's finding himself nose-to-nose with a former friend of his. Yeah, former. The mutual resentment that they displayed to each other after the disastrous war with Israel spelled the end of their friendship and political alliance. It was simply a matter of, this authoritarian regime ain't big enough for the two of us anymore, after the Six-Day War. Only one of these two strongmen could survive in a post-Naxa world. Hafez, being the chess player that he was, made the first move by quietly neutralizing Jadid's allies rather than do something stupid like, oh, I don't know, having Jadid killed. No, that was not Jadid's fate. Instead, Hafez deposed Jadid loyalists from key positions and replaced them with allies like his brother, fellow General Rifat al-Assad, who will play a very prominent role in Part 2, and Hafez's longtime friend, Mustafa Tlaas. The campaign to isolate Salah Jadid was not limited to military officers in Syria, Sam Daguer writes in his book, Assad or We Burned the Country, quote, Hafez signaled to crucial allies like the Soviet Union that he, not Jadid, was on the winning horse and that they should strengthen him and supply him with advanced weapons in order to confront the United States and its allies in the region. Soviet military aid to the Syrian army and especially the Hafez-controlled air force doubled from 1968 to 1970, the period of the final showdown Between Hafez and Jadid. Jadid moved first against Hafez and Mustafa at a a Ba'ath Party Emergency National Congress in late October. 1970. During marathon sessions lasting almost two weeks, Hafez was held responsible for the shameful retreat in the 1967 war, accused of maintaining back channels with the imperialist West, and denounced as a defeatist who was going to ruin the party and gut it of its revolutionary ideology. Of its revolutionary ideology, for Jadid and his loyalists, the proof of Hafez's treasonous ties to the West lay in his refusal to mobilize the Air Force to help Palestinian guerrilla fighters in their battle against the US-backed King Hussein of Jordan during what became known as the Black September in 1970. Jadid had ordered tanks to be sent into Jordan to help the Palestinians, and almost provoked war with the Jordanians. Jadid proceeded to strip Hafez and Mustafa of their military ranks and positions, but Hafez had by then laid the groundwork ...to move against Jadid. He had a lot to bolster his case. Syria's economy was in ruins after extensive nationalization. Central bank reserves stood at 50 million lira, about 14 million U.S. dollars... ...enough to cover state expenditures and civil servant salaries for about a month or two at most. Hafez cast Jadid as scapegoat for the decision to confiscate private companies and property... ...after the Baathists seized power in 1963 a move that resulted in a capital flight to the tune of $1 billion during the ensuing two years. Hafez argued that Jadid failed as party leader as well, and that his foray into Jordan had almost brought about disaster. Behind the scenes, Hafez gathered wide support by promising to ease Syria's isolation from its Arab neighbors, and for that matter most of the world, discarding Jadid's unpopular Mao and Trotsky-inspired communist revolutionary model to jumpstart the economy, to loosen the regime's grip on society, and reclaim the Golan Heights from Israel. As the party congress came to a chaotic end, Hafez and Mustafa, in league with their loyalists in the military and intelligence services, began to execute the plan that they had at the ready. Salah Jadid, the figurehead president, along with the prime minister and their allies, were rounded up one by one and taken to prison, where most remained until they died. That was Sam Daguerre writing in his book Assad or We Burn the Country. And there you have it. The long-time coup d'etat veteran has finally gone and launched his very own coup. Oh, sorry, I I mean corrective movement. Yeah, Hafez al-Assad didn't take kindly to people calling his um, calling his coup a coup. Yeah, no, he wanted to present it to his country and the world as being a popular revolution. Was that true? No. But why let that get in the way of a good coup? They spent four years putting so much work into it after all. Salah Jadid did not Take to being overthrown as kindly as Shukri al quwatli or with as much grace as Adib al Shiskali. No, Jadid was a sore loser, and he made sure Hafez knew it. The two are reported to have had one last conversation right after the 1970 coup, oh, I'm <coughs> sorry, corrective movement, where Jadid declared, If I ever take back power, I will have you dragged through the streets until you die. Given Hafez al-Assad's cold, calculating nature, he most likely intended to have Jadid sentenced to life in prison from the beginning. But some people have suggested that Jadid's bad sportsmanship at the very end led Hafez to decide against showing him leniency. Either way, the 1970 corrective movement will be Syria's last successful coup d'etat as of the time of this recording in 2021. Hafiz al-Assad will spend the early years of his autocratic governance stifling all forms of dissent. Left-wing, right-wing, secular, religious fundamentalist, doesn't matter. If you're anti-Assad, you're exiled or in prison, or dead, or being tortured. Once Hafez feels secure in his position as the iron-fisted dictator of an exceptionally oppressive police state, he'll turn his attention back to Syria's long-standing conflict with Israel and work to make his country a major regional power. This ambition, with that same ruthless drive to accomplish his goals, no matter how difficult or amoral, is going to get thousands of people killed when we pick this story back up. Tens of thousands, actually. At various points, Hafez al-Assad's ruthlessness and capacity for brutal collective punishment will see him go to lengths that would make the average comic book villain turn pale with horror. I'm talking about destroying entire cities and pushing the world to the brink of World War III level roofless. There's a reason why Henry Kissinger will end up taking meetings with Assad that sometimes last six and a half hours where the two negotiate over the fate of the Middle East. Part 2 of The Assad Family and Regime is going to dive headfirst into more Truth is Stranger Than Fiction Territory. To what Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011 or earlier. This has been our eighth episode The Assad Family and Regime, Part One. Follow us on Twitter at Syriapod so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can also email us at happened to Podcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Syria to support us for as little as $1 a month if you want. You can also get bonus episodes for just $3 a month, or join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Shout-out to our patrons on Patreon, Jaeger DePato and Evan Kennedy. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.